everyone. Thanks for joining us on, I think this is episode 21 of the podcast since we have rebranded and not no longer doing seasons. Full disclosure, I kind of wanted to do a season just because I thought the new intros and all the commercials were cool, but you know what I what I say comes last. Anyways, uh, with us today is uh, Anton. Anton, for those that don't know you, would you mind uh, introducing yourself? Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. First of all, uh, it's crazy that that I'm here among the mix of guests that you guys have had on so far. Uh, that that's just mind boggling to me. So yeah, big thank you. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Anton Abritsky. Um, Anton loves D and B on Twitter. I work at uh, Lares doing uh, purple blue team. Uh, kind of things but yeah just uh, super excited to, to be here and hang out yeah man awesome. well you got, you got to give yourself a little bit more credit you put out some yeah. good good stuff so you oh, you're definitely you. definitely somebody that's worth talking to right and getting yeah, your thank opinion you so much, and yeah. thoughts thank yeah. you we're honored to have you here so thanks for joining us today oh thank you yeah the, the honor's online i know uh one thing that really stood out to me most recently was your your uh purple team post or your, your lateral movement post forgive me um, and what, could you kind of like walk through like what your initial methodology was for that post and like, what was the impact you wanted to like push out after posting that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, uh, so like for, for, for my day job, um, what we usually do is like purple team engagements. Um, and as part of those, we do a lot of like lateral movement stuff to techniques, TTPs. Um, and I kept finding that clients didn't really like rasp all the like like the categories of lateral movement and like all the different nuances and i think lateral movement is one of the more interesting categories just because there's like so much thought that goes in to it from both like a threat actor perspective and a defensive perspective um and then i always had that blog post by by jackson t um kind of like I, i read it and i had it in the back of my head and i thought that post would lend itself really well to just like looking at lateral movement and thinking about lateral movement like a little bit differently than than what I usually blog about. Um, uh, so it's usually like when I do a blog, it's like you know here's a technique, here's how you detect it, like here's the data sources you, you need and things like that. But the lateral movement one, I, I thought that there's so much more like nuance and interesting uh, like aspects to, to chew on for it. Um, so I really wanted to mix uh, Jackson's like mental model and apply it to lateral movement and then kind of like mix in uh, obviously like miter in there just because everyone loves miter yeah <laughs> and, and everything has to get mapped to attack and i thought like it, it, I, I just thought it would make an interesting like mix of, of of aspects that that would kind of highlight lateral movement as a as something that's like a little bit more uh like requires a little bit more kind of thought behind it than other minor categories maybe okay when we're working with customers one of the things that we we like to kind of talk one of the difficult things is we have a finite amount of detection engineering resources right and so uh in an ideal world you'd be able to uh write a detection for every technique um sometimes that's not even technically feasible in other cases um it's you just don't have the resources so you have to prioritize in some way and uh, one of the reasons that you you alluded to and potentially even said outright that's really nice about lateral movement is that it's kind of like a central uh, a central tactic to an overall attack path right so it's like uh, you you talked about how like initial access is a prerequisite to lateral movement but then lateral movement will help you do things like uh, 
gain credential access. So there, like, let's say there's some credential that you need access to, and it's not available on the machine that you initially are on, you could laterally move to that machine. And I think one of the interesting things is uh, lateral movement. There's just a, there's a finite number of lateral movement techniques that are kind of available. So like with the exception of maybe exploitation of remote services, just because there's a bunch of crappy remote services out there. Right. But generally speaking, like if, if you want like ubiquitous lateral movement techniques that are going to be available across the board in most environments, um, there's, there's a finite number of ways that attackers can achieve that tactic. And so it's, it kind of lends itself to, um, and it's almost guaranteed to be leveraged during an attack path as to where, like one of the things that we used to recommend was, uh, kind of before EDRs became ubiquitous, we'd tell people if you have something that's maybe doing periodic scans for telemetry or for uh, you know data from the network, then maybe you want to look at uh, persistence because persistence by its nature is persistent, right? It's going to be there for a long time. It's non-ephemeral, and so that lends itself very well to that approach where it's like you don't you're not collecting near real time type information. Um, the problem is is that like you could almost have persistence without like you'd have implicit persistence just by having multiple footholds, for instance, right? And so it's not guaranteed that persistence is going to be used um, right. as to where lateral movement is. And I think the finite nature of the different avenues of lateral movement kind of lends itself well uh, for detection efforts. Yeah. And it's also like a lot of lateral movement techniques like blend in with like regular, you know, like network operations and stuff, especially if you have like scanners or, or service mm -hmm. accounts that, that do weird things. So yeah, like the, 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 the whole like concept of like baselining and, yeah. and, and, and like anomaly detection, I think is like super important, especially for like lateral movement, because if you look at your, like your network and you, and you see like one host talking to each other on like SMB or WinRM, you know, that might be normal, but it, but it might not be. So I think that's where like the, the whole like mental model thing and then the the crunching of the miter data comes in probably more you know more handy with with a lot of movement than it would with other miter categories but yeah it's a it's definitely an interesting one um i find too that the uh like the data sources required for for ladder movement specifically a lot of clients just don't have them you know mm -hmm. they don't they don't have pcap in the right segment or the net flow in the right segment um, and yeah. I find that EDRs just generally kind of struggle with these techniques, pr probably because the the techniques used are so similar to operations that are normal. Yeah, I, I think um, what's interesting to me when I think about lateral movement is I definitely see almost like there's more data sources that can be applied to lateral movement than like say something like credential dumping on a host. You know, credential dumping for like dumping LSAS you have like open process, right? Like that's one, you might have like a file creation if they use like mini dump, write dump, things like that. That's You're very specific on what you can use for that um, specific attack. But with lateral movement, you have a couple different things. You have um, host-based telemetry in terms of like a process network connection to another host. And then you have the actual network traffic. And then you have, I mean, just like with any time you want to access another box, you have um logons that have to happen there so you have that as a as a data source and then you have like the server side process um data that's there too obviously the incoming network connection to a process but then a process is going to execute something yeah. right and so like you have all these things that i feel like when lateral movement is looked at um 
expanding upon all the different data sources that are available to us is often overlooked and people get very isolated into one data source like oh i must have network telemetry it's like uh like network telemetry would be very nice to have absolutely but like it's not the only thing just like someone's like oh i must have host base like well no not necessarily if you have network you can get you know maybe like 38 percent, you know 45 percent of the way there um that's one thing i like about lateral movement is you have a lot of options um in a different that you could apply different strategies to for detection for that particular tactic yeah and i think that's actually like a really good use case for, for miter uh for, for all the attack data that that a lot of people seem to overlook is like the data source aspect and which data sources apply to which techniques so like i, I see a lot of people try to use like miter as like a bingo card right like checking mm. off like yeah we got coverage for this but <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that, that's fine. I, there's nothing wrong with that approach. It's probably like the best way of measuring, you know, that kind of thing. But the, uh, I think the more tactical use case for it would be to look at like, hey, I want to, I want to wrangle lateral movement and what data sources do I need to do that? And, and MITRE is a really good resource for, for that. And I, and I think like the, like you mentioned, all the different data sources, like stitching those together from like an analyst point of view. And, and building like a picture, I think people kind of struggle with that because yeah. there's, you know, they pull a data source from here, they pull a data source from there. Uh, you know, the timestamps are off, <laughs> the field names are different, like all that little nitty gritty stuff that, yeah. that you have to like, you know, like, uh, you know, boots on the ground kind of thing where yep. you have to actually like do the thing. It, it becomes harder. But I, I think like these days with like XDR tools and stuff, it's getting a little bit easier. But if you're looking at uh, you know, like PCAP that you're trying to like parse and slice and dice and then correlate those two. It's difficult, right, to, to do that oh, yeah. kind of thing manually. One of the one of the things that I struggle with with the data, like the data source thing, is definitely a worthwhile endeavor, and I think it's getting better. So I, I'll start with that. But one of the things that I think that's currently missing with the way that data sources are represented is it's uh, represented in a qual- quantitative fashion, but not a qualitative fashion. So, like for instance, right. if you were to say you know, what's the most central, from MITRE's perspective, what's the most central data source? Like, what do you think that would be? Like, what's the most I, frequently used data source? From the chart, it's all the command line stuff. Yeah, process the, command the, line parameters, right? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know that that's actually what the numbers bear out, but I suspect that that's what the numbers bear out. Um, right. But the, the problem is, is that you have to, like, yes, could process command line parameters be useful in almost all use cases? Yes, right? But does it provide you with sufficient context in order to make a decision in any use case? Probably not, right? In a lot. So like you think of, like, I think we look at service creation as like our, that's kind of our canonical example. Um, And it's, I think it's germane because that's a lateral movement technique to some degree. I don't know if it's classified officially as lateral movement, but it it is remote code. It allows remote code execution. Um, And like one of the things is, it's like, yeah, I could observe service creation using process command line parameters if somebody uses like sc.exe or, you know, whatever equivalent type type tool. However, you can certainly make services without using those tools, right? Or to where from the command line perspective, the intent or the like the action that's occurring is is opaque or non-transparent. Um, and so it's it's an interesting thing to where we need to make sure that we add a qualitative metric to it. Um, in order to properly evaluate and not just go with like the, hey, you know, MITRE says that if we have process command line parameters, we'd be able to detect 250 different techniques. It's like, well, you'd be able to detect some portion of 250 yep. techniques is the right. important part. Yeah. I, th- I think, yeah, I didn't cut you off, did I, Jared? No, no, no. Okay. 
I think it's interesting when people say you can detect given like this, these many attacks, given this telemetry. Um, I think there's a lot, there's so many more variants in play though. So like, let's look at analytic platforms, for example. Like if, if you want to start utilizing multiple data sources and do joins, like there's really not a lot of options that are phenomenal out there. Like I'm a, like to me, I don't like Splunk, you know, Splunk like makes my life a lot harder than it really needs to be. Um, you know, like Kibana is like nice if you're wanting to look for like one singular thing. Sure. Um, I'm a big Kusto fan or Jupiter fan. So like, I, I like those capabilities and like then you can start to wrangle in multiple data sources and start to apply them for detections but i also think it's another variant that i see is like and jared i think you'll you'll love this conversation you'll, oh boy. you'll just wait guys watch i'm gonna say this word and he's gonna be, you, know um, my, you know my trigger basically <laughs> detectionomics <laughs> yeah oh god oh. Uh, i think like what is the no uh like the like uh oh, the base condition the sig yeah the signal yeah. to noise ratio because if we have process command line parameters great we can detect a lot of things but mm, okay what is the false positive rate that's going to come along with that if we're only looking at that data source what's the overall volume of that data source versus what's the useful volume exactly. of that data source and like just and and well so that's a qualitative thing as well so it's like Oh man. Okay. Yeah. See, I you, said, you got me. I told you, man. Yeah. Well, because, okay. So there's like a there's like a how many techniques would this thing be useful for, right? Yes. And then it's like, what percentage of let's say we let's say we were to say what's what data source if we collected it would give us the highest percentage of coverage, right? Because like the the reality is you're never going to have a hundred percent coverage of any technique. So let's say it gives you twenty five percent here, seventy percent here. Like which one, which data source has the biggest bang for like, well, yeah. provides the best coverage, but that's not even bang for your buck because what you're saying is like your buck is relative to the overall volume. But like, exactly. let's say this thing gives you lots of coverage, but you know, 99% of the volume that you receive is not part of that coverage. Like, like open process, for example, like is a phenomenal data source in my opinion, especially if you know how to like manipulate like big mass math or whatever in your analytic platform. Yeah. The issue is volume. Well, it's right? only it's useful like, for, it's only useful for one. I mean, maybe this isn't true, but it's basically useful for one technique or like one subset of techniques. Right. Yeah. Because like uh, like maybe it's for, maybe it's useful for like injection. It's useful for overpass the hash. It's useful for yeah. uh, credential like credential dumping. Anytime you're accessing a process to do something, like it's great. But the, the problem is like it's not a data source that you could be like, yes, this definitively happened once I saw this. And well, also the volume is so loud. There's also there's also a component of like uh, what percentage of attacks would use like let's say this thing gives you 90 percent coverage but it also only one percent of the total logs that come from that data source are useful right so now you have 99 percent, but it gives you 90 percent coverage so you're like that's pretty good but then like you analyze and i don't know how you actually achieve this but conceptually you analyze and you say this attack technique that it gives me 90 percent coverage for is only used in one percent of all known you know yeah. attack paths well it's like okay that's like I don't know when you start doing like percentages and probability, you have to start multiplying those numbers against each other. And so then it, yep. you know, gets really it's small, scary. really quick. Yeah. Yeah. And also to me, like this kind of goes back to our conversation that we had the other day, Jared, about like taking conceptual ideas and making them practical for an impact. Yeah. And this is one of those where it's like, I look at like the data sources given to us by MITRE and like, given that 
X data source gives me, let's say, 95% coverage of the MITRE 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 framework. Mida. In my head, in my head, analysis paralysis, guys. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. In my in my head, like I think, well, with more coverage, more volume of noise is going to be applied to it as well. So, like conceptually, sure, like great. I have 95% coverage of the MITRE attack framework. Practicality of that is, yeah. Well. I think that there's like a, so I get where you're going. I think there's like a weird thing to where it's like, uh, often you hear something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's like the more data I collect, the like harder it is for me to find the thing that I'm interested in, which I, yeah. I don't know that that's actually true, right? Because like I could collect NetFlow information and then I could limit my search to only look at process access events, right? And so like the fact that I have NetFlow information doesn't matter in the context of how like difficult that query is necessarily yeah. right um but you do have a finite capacity for collecting logs and so like the more volume you collect uh in one place the less volume you could collect in some other place right and so like that's that's where it matters but like once you've collected it i don't know like it probably does like there's going to be some you know sim engineer that's going to be like yeah it does actually have a impact but like the the query you could write the query in such a way that you can minimize the impact pretty pretty well in most modern like query languages because they're smart enough to kind of limit the subset of data that you're interacting with yeah, find so, a, oh sorry Tony. no, no i was going to ask you a question if that's cool but go, go ahead yeah. I, 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 I was just going to say like i i think like and, and maybe you guys have more insight into this but from from what i've seen a lot of clients don't think about this kind of stuff or, or discuss it um yeah. especially if they do discuss it it's probably not in the context of their like threat model and their like business objectives right i mean usually it just it's like miter and like that's it but i find that there's very little like strategic and like yeah. tactical discussion about like hey what data do we actually need yeah. what are we collecting it for like what are we going to do with it i like to it, I think, yeah i like to kind of compare so i've been working on this kind of comparison to the human perceptual system so like your telemetry collection you use sensors right so like edr is an example of a sensor uh, your NetFlow sensor is an example of a sensor. Those are equivalent to our sensory organs, right? So like human beings have eyes, which are, you know, let's say the EDR of our, of our, you know, environment, like of our system, I guess. Um, you have ears, which might be the NetFlow, right? And like so on and so forth. You have all these, but you have a finite number of, of, of senses and there's potentially things to be sensed that you're not collecting, right? So there's something outside the capability of EDR. So currently EDR only collects a subset. But then there's like, a, when you use your eyes, you actually are, your retinas are receiving more light, so more photons than your brain presents, to, like is presented with, right? And there's like a, there's actually a process, there's a part of your brain that processes and says, this is more important than this other thing. And that just happens implicitly. We don't understand how it works, right? But like, basically, we actually, in the terms of cybersecurity, uh, we have the ability in some sense to decide what we think is more important right and right. so like we're functioning this i think it's called the the thalamus is the part of the brain that's doing this in the visual system but it's uh we're like functioning as the thalamus in like our logging policy to some degree and so it's like we only know about that which we see um but how do we know that that which we see is that which we should see so like in right. human in the human sensory system there's like an evolutionary process to where if you didn't see the things that you needed to see you were eaten or killed or whatever. And like, I don't think that we have, we don't have like an equivalent 
we don't have as closed of a loop of feed a feedback loop at like maybe that maybe the uh comparison is like a red team exercise you run that and that's the feed that's the equivalent of being killed or like a ransomware attack like if you're ransomware then obviously you weren't looking at the right things um right. but like it's not as i guess like uh human hum, like human the human species has more of a collective type approach to it as to where we're learning it individually and the problem is is that by the time you learn the lesson you're already dead so it doesn't like actually benefit you going forward i, I don't know i like i haven't quite figured out how to present that but that's kind of like my analogy that i i'm starting to it, it makes a like. ton of sense and especially like the, just like humans right like every corporation every every business is different with, with yep. like different networks and stuff so the the priority on which data or what they need to be seeing and what they need to be like how that cycle completes of like the visual then getting into the brain you know that the, the equivalent on the logging side of that that always is going to be different for, for yep. each organization um, yeah, so and you're a product see, of yeah. your environment to some degree. Yeah, and like every environment has its own like set of limitations and, and skill sets that that are available to it and, and things like that. So yeah, the, but I just don't see like that discussion happening. Like yeah. when I bring it up to clients, they they're yeah. just like, I, we never really you know thought about this kind of stuff before. Well, so, so you yeah. know you know what it kind of turns into is like uh, so like yeah, everybody has different environments and they they have different needs based on that environment. But there's like some meta set of rules right so there's like the meta set which applies to everybody and then there's the individualized you know particularized per your environment right and the meta set should be generally speaking represented by vendors right they should be solving the things that are universally applicable to everybody right and so yeah. but like maybe maybe what you're experiencing and i like i don't disagree with the sentiment that you're that you're discussing but like maybe what you're experiencing is people are assuming that the vendor has solved both the universal and the particularized for them, as opposed yeah. to saying, okay, we have the universal. And like, there's a question of whether or not the vendors have properly solved the universal. That's, that's a whole different problem, right? But like, let's say they did. You still, you still have to solve the particularized, which is like the, or the idiosyncratic aspect of it. Um, and like you, it's not realistic to expect that the vendor is going to solve it, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah. I think a lot of people like get the, you know, not, not to pick on vendors too much, but I, I feel like a lot of clients don't hold the vendor's feet to the, you know, proverbial fire enough. Yeah. yeah. Like if a detection's missed, they're always like hesitant to work with the vendor or something like that. And yeah. I think that's one part of it. And I think the other part is because they don't think of the defensive orientation strategically they don't pick the vendors strategically either yep. it, it, like it, i always see like a mismatch of uh like the vendor does certain things well but the client already has other things that do the same process well as well so nobody really thought like you know they, they, they pick the vendor it does a thing but whether that thing is actually important <laughs> to the organization yeah. or whether it actually provide new value i there's a lot of like it's super complex right yep, if you yep, think yep. about like an organization how to go through yep. that whole process like all the people involved the consensus there's there's always place, these uh, bake-offs there's always these bake-offs yeah. right yeah i've always been curious about the bake-offs because like the question is like like what is the metric that you want the vendor to hit and it's like okay coverage of miter but the issue is is like in my head attacks are expanding past miter like if you look at some attacks like yeah that come out well, like they might not even map directly to MITRE. So again, so MITRE might be a great starting point, but it's not where we want to end. And yeah. so like... MITRE's trailing, that, trailing reality. Yeah. And so yeah. like, 
that being said, when we do these bake-offs, um, you know, you, you see customers like saying like, they do this thing really well, but this person do this. It's like, well, what is your org need? Like mm-hmm. what other like tooling do you have in play? Like, do you need um, a vendor that does like, that has like mixed in network things really well? If you already have a network solution, probably not. You might want to look into, does that vendor hold like log on and identity information more than that, right? So it's like picking and choosing what you want so that like, it's not what does this vendor solve today for our problem? Like, how do they solve our problem today? But how do they solve our problem today? And any like problems that we might have in the future that we don't know is a problem yet. And yep. like, and I think when it comes to vendors too, if we're talking about EDR is like, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day is like, I think like most sensors, you have to think about what type of data you want and what type is given to you. Like, for example, like you have like process bound telemetry which is like the basic of all EDR vendors I'm going to give you. But then you might have like some like, you might have some like MDE that are starting to put like a little bit of pizzazz in their information. Like I just saw this past week, like while messing with my MDE that they're inputting like net, like network share um, tables in there. There's no data in there yet, but they're starting to input those things. So they're starting to move past the process. Yeah. But to me, that's additional information that we can start to leverage in terms of detection. Right. Um, I think and there's so, this. I think there's this weird thing to that point, Johnny, to where um, EDR vendors are actually like they're uh, they're the transport mechanism of the genome in the evolutionary kind of example. To where it's like our feedback to them should inform them, and they're the thing that maintains the the genes as it progresses over time. Because like you know conceptually, we're we're finite and we're going to die, but the the vendor yeah. lives on, lives on forever. Yeah, I don't know if that's true, but there there's this weird thing to where. Um, like we're we're all ignorant to different degrees, right? That's kind of like a fundamental truth of reality, right? Um, and like conceptually, a like a lot of times the customer is demanding something from the vendor that the vendor knows is not actually the best, you know, course of action going forward. But they they're incentivized based on you know money to do what the customer asks. Otherwise, like it's great if you like. How many times have you seen like? Um, the the vendor that has the best solution doesn't actually win because kind of like the market's not ready for them if that makes yeah. sense um and so like basically what ended up happening is all these vendors saw let's say i don't know who who it was but let's say it was carbon black because i kind of perceived them to be one of the first like true kind of edrs in the in the sense that we think of it now and it's like everybody saw what they were collecting and then it's like well we have to at least collect that right yeah. and then like and that kind of set the 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 flag in the ground i guess that everybody had to meet on and then like to johnny's point mde is kind of like going forward and and they they have like better control for uh this type of stuff i think but um so maybe it's easier i don't i don't actually know but conceptually it should be should be easier for them to expand this um and they have like full control of the whole stack but um like they're they're able to kind of go out and say okay well what if we collect this thing um, and just kind of see what happens. But that's that's the exploration that I think is extremely valuable. Is like, like how do you know? Like, so just because everybody is collecting process events, how do we know that that's the most important thing to be collecting? Yeah. Right. So that that's yeah. like one of my fundamental issues with like uh, anomaly detection is there's there's uh, there's an infinite number of dimensions of analysis, right? So there's a mil- there's an infinite number of things you could look at. And an anomaly can manifest itself in any of, along any of those dimensions, 
right? But you're you're only analyzing that behavior along a finite set of dimensions. Yep. So what it like? How are you so sure that like when you're looking for anomalies? Like I, I think it's probably true that bad behavior, like un, like malicious activity, is anomalous. The question is is how are you sure that the anomaly will manifest itself in the place that you're looking for the anomaly, especially given that the attackers know what your what your perceptual capability is, right? So they know what event you're looking at, and they're go- like, we saw this. This used to be a thing to where you would like make your malware and then you would run it against Virus Total, and you'd be like, okay, look, it doesn't doesn't pop up on anything. I'm good to go, right? That that was them taking advantage of the known battle space or the known perceptual capability of their target, and then going from there. So it's it's. I think that there's some some really bad assumptions in the anomaly kind of approach in general. Yeah, Sorry, I like I think, completely went in a different direction. No, it, it no, makes I, sense because I think that dynamic that you described is, is only exacerbated by a non-strategic purchase and placement and deployment yeah. of the EDR, right? So yeah. it makes sense, especially like even something as basic, like do you want the EDR to be more hands-off or, or do you have skilled people that can go in like MD is a good example. Like, do you want it to do like auto remediation stuff, or do you want to really take advantage of that advanced hunting yep. capability? Like, do you have the people who know like KQL to know what they're looking yep. for, that kind of thing? Yep. And yeah, if I you think... do, that might be a great purchase, right? That, that's a great idea to, to get, but it depends. I think also like, man, I just thought of this. Like, okay, so we had a conversation. I don't know if it was with Andy the last time or maybe somebody before that, but I remember bringing this up, like, and Jared's heard me like harp on this a thousand times, so he's gonna probably roll his eyes. You know, he's been like, "Not this again." It's okay, but, I'm like, gonna go with it. <laughs> but like the data triad, really. Like I talk about this thing called the data triad, and really, what I think is like you have like three really like sources of data, and that's network. You have native uh, telemetry, so like in Windows, let's do Windows security events, and then you have the EDR. And like I really think, dependent on what your detection strategy is. If you want to start to really loop all those in, like you really get your best bang for the buck if you start to like do really advanced detection strategies and start to apply those. Like I did that with some RPC stuff. Okay. So like the issue though that I see is like how many this is a great question for you, Anton. How many customers have you seen that are actually collecting wing collecting and utilizing Windows security events? Yeah, not, not as many as I'd like to see. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Right. That's yeah. where that's right. why I think like MDE might be starting to add these things like network share into their EDR platform because right. they're like, hey, like we need these events in order to like do better analysis for detections. I know. And like, again, like they have access to it because it literally just comes from ETW provider. Let's just pull this data because it's the same. It's I haven't like there is no data in the table yet, but it's probably not the same. Or it's probably going to be the same fields as like the Windows Security event. I think it's like fifty-one forty-five is going to hold. Um, yeah. But I think that is where like some vendors are going towards, and so that they start to actually like close that gap. Okay, well now you guys don't even need the Windows Security events. We'll take care of like mm-hmm. two thirds of this. Well, triad. Yeah. One forward. one question that I have about the the what like what's the distinction or what's the purpose of the distinction between native events and EDR? Because like, uh, if you're looking at it from a fun- functional perspective, they're telling you the same same thing conceptually, right? But like, think, if the oh, value sorry. is is that like one is just there, I guess is the is the distinction. No, no, but, no. Like, I think like, like they're they're overlapped a, for sure. They're 
there's some overlap, but not like a hundred percent. And so, like, um, there could be a hundred percent overlap, though, conceptually. Like, if you have a if you have a device driver installed on the system as part of your EDR, you could replicate. Right. Yeah, I mean, conceptually, yeah, if like you're ingesting all of, like the Windows security events, yeah, absolutely. Which I think is what MDE might be like planning to do as they expand their product, as like we see more tables being added. But like right now, the reality, practically, like no one's doing that. Like. Um, yeah. at least not to the full capacity so like when i say native events like these are events that are that do not cost us to quote yeah. unquote collect now we might need to store it somewhere that's going to cost us money but i'm not having to pay for that right now that's just like the operating system has went ahead and built that in and like i can just go ahead and start to collect that you know we have security application system logs all those nice things um that we can leverage those are what i consider native and like they hold different telemetry perspective than like say typical i would say process bound edr so like yeah for example like 5145 the network share that i'm talking about um if those i mean that event could be used for so many different things if like you have like a ps exec and you you'll see like the uh ibc dollars sign like network share access through a specific name pipe for that great or also if someone's just like you have a user accessing a network share to access a file great you'll see that um is that technically process bound on the back end sure yeah but i guess like i guess it's like my... not like it's not explicit to x process did did y thing my, i guess my perspective is like you you could very well look at the windows event log as an edr like they're yeah. functionally equivalent and so, like, I, I don't know that there's like I, I like for uh, one example. I don't know if they still do this, but one of the data sources that Miter used to list was um, was uh, the Windows event log as a data source. And like mm -hmm. you, like there is um, an obvious issue when you have like process monitoring as a data source and Windows event logs as a data source because you're looking you're you're using one category to describe two things that are like two things that are at different levels of analysis right They're like if you're going to categorize things together they have to be applied at the same level of analysis i guess yeah and so, so like because process monitoring is in windows event logging if that makes sense but yeah, it's also so, in so edr could you use windows security events as your like main e like event source for all things you I, could yeah i'm not I i'm not arguing with your um uh, with your main point i'm just curious about the logic uh, like the 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 data uh, data collection triad it's it it seems to me that there's kind of really two categories networking and and maybe there's like network edr and application potentially it but looks, like yeah. it's all abstraction jared well yeah but so i, like I think i think the there's a side if we look at the host base i'm just laughing because that's what we, we brought up abstraction in the rob yeah rob thing. like yep. It's how I think, there, I think the there's two different layers really of abstraction. Go. Yeah, there's different layers here. So it's like if we okay, we look at the host base. That's an overarching like category. But then you start to like dive deeper into it, and ex like you have to separate the two uh, collection opportunities because EDR was built in to start to collect the things that people thought the native Windows events weren't giving them, and they yeah, wanted yeah, those yeah. things. And like and so like, but the, my point is, is that you have network host base let's say and native right but if you're you're telling me native is a subset of host based but then like so we're we're talking about two things at the same level and then we're talking about one thing broken out at a lower level 
But then, yeah, like, like on the network level, you could say PCAP, you could say NetFlow, you could say... So what does PCAP give me that NetFlow doesn't? The the contents of the message? Yeah, I don't know. I've never really oh, dealt with okay. network data. Yeah, yeah. But, like, both both are... That was a legit a question. Su- okay. I don't know. Like, that's the reason why okay. I just left fair enough. network there. Like, okay, I expanded fair enough. Yeah. upon the two things that I knew. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think what... Ha- my... Uh, my criticism, I guess, not I'm not trying to be a jerk or anything, but my criticism of the triad. What, a, what an asshole. No, I kidding. know. <laughs> is that is that you have two supersets, host base and network. And then for one of those yeah. supersets, you chose to broke it out, break it out uh, at a lower level of analysis. And like you yeah. have a functional le- level of analysis, which is an EDR could technically have feature parity with the Windows event log. Maybe not literally. Versa, yeah. Maybe not literally, but yes, vice versa. And like the EDR, it's like yeah, they they decided they wanted to capture processes because there were subsets. There was a subset of context that the built-in process monitoring did not collect, but could could have collected. Um, and in fact, they've like expanded that over time. That the EDR thought were critical, right, to yep. detection. And so then the EDR is just like, well, we don't have control over what Windows collects, so we're just going to add something. Yeah. Um, I think that's very yeah, that's a valid point. I mean, like I I purposely didn't expand network stuff because like I haven't yeah, necessarily like, dove into that too yeah. much, but. Okay. Like, yeah, so fair criticism there. Like, it's, I just like, I utilize that as an example because, like, I think of, you know, what's kind of sad too is like, I feel like there's this war going on between like network data versus host based data. It's like, yo, dogs, can we just use both? But like, no. you have to. You have to. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. Right. And so, like, yeah. um, can I yeah, give an, I, can I give an example of that? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, one of the, I think, Johnny, you might have been involved in this. This may have been before you joined Spectre Ops at the time, but, um, Will came out with Rubius, right? Which was uh, his solution to uh, overpass the hash, right? So overpass the hash allows you to take a credential for a non-logged in user, inject that into LSAS's memory, and then uh, you you would be able to authenticate as that user, basically request a Kerberos ticket without like literally logging that user on. And there's you know some practical reasons why you might want to do that. But Will realized that um, in doing overpass the hash, you actually made yourself detectable along the same route as like Mimi, traditional Mimikatz credential dumping. Um, and if there's one thing that EDR vendors should be able to detect, it's like traditional Mimikatz credential dumping because that's like the thing that everybody staked their claim on. And so he's like, well, I probably don't want to accidentally, you know, run into that. That would be kind of dumb. And so he created uh, Rub- Rubius, which was built off of this uh, Kikio tool that Delphi, that Delphi had written. And the idea was we could just make a raw Kerberos request uh, to the domain controller instead of injecting and then allowing the system to do what it does and request the, make the Kerberos request. Why don't we just make the Kerberos request ourselves, right? And the, that was great, except the, the problem was um, now you have a process that's not LSAS, aka the RPC server, right? Making, right, making yeah. this Kerberos request, right? Um, which is then detectable in its own right. Um, the problem is, is from the host base perspective, all you can get is Kerberos made a port 88 connection to this IP, right? That's that's what you get. Um, from the network connection, you, you get this, like, let's say you have a PCAP, this particular type of Kerberos request, so like a TGT rec request, a TGT request, was made from this system to the domain controller with these details, let's say. Um, but then you can't go back to the process. And so there's like a missing... Without either, you're missing critical context because now, like from the host base perspective, now I have to look at every every Kerberos request of which I'm only actually interested in a subset. I'm only interested yeah. in TGT Rex, right? 
Um, but there's, you know, let's say seven different Kerberos requests that could be made. There's, there may be a lot more, but seven that, that I'm aware of. Um, but from the network, you can't figure out the process. And so how do you, how do you distinguish that this is a, you know, abnormal Kerberos request because you only have the perspective of the request, which doesn't have that context. And that's why like having both gives you enough information to actually discern, yeah. uh, maybe, maybe not actually enough, but it gives you more of, uh, more context to be able to make a decision with. Yeah. We run into that with like Kerberos thing is a good example too. Yeah. Like sometimes the product will detect like Rubius itself, but not mm -hmm. the Kerberos thing activity. Yeah. And, and, and clients get tripped up on that. Like, Hey, I thought the EDR was supposed to detect Kerberos thing, but yeah. that I think that distinction is, is like really important. And if, if your detection is... is like meant to like cover the base, like the very like low precise level of detection strats. And then like, it's up to whoever the detection team is to yeah. expand. Yeah, yeah that's why it's so important to like figure out what you're doing with the cdr like what, what you yeah. want it to do for you like where where do you want that lift happening and then what Precisely. like how the edr fits in your i think like, this is the the, so. the purple team value proposition right because you you could look at it from a low resolution perspective and say oh we detected this activity right but you could also look at it at a higher resolution perspective and say we detected this because it, they happened to use the known, the most commonly known tool to perform right. this activity. And like, if you're detecting Rubius, you detected it by the skin of your teeth is basically yeah. what you should take away from that, right? Yeah, um, like you detected a, like the Kerberos thing string on the command line. Yeah, actual, that's like, yeah, that's like, that's right. like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take too much pride. Like, it's good that you did that, right? It's, it's, yeah. that's a good outcome, right? And like, yeah. great. Man, but like, that, you shouldn't be prideful that you caught it that way. You should, you should then ask some very serious questions of like, why didn't we catch this at a more fundamental level? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, hmm. yeah, so this is, yeah. So spicy conversation. Okay. I think like, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Johnny's good for one of these, uh, uh podcasts. <laughs> well, I actually have two points I want to bring up. So yep. I might have two. You got it. You got it. Yep. Um, but yeah, back, back uh, before we move on back to your thing, like I agree, like, I think like what the whole point of like the triad thing was really to bring the importance that we shouldn't be using one end of each spectrum. So we shouldn't be using only host space. We shouldn't be only using network. We got to meet in the middle somewhere. Yep. Um, I and I'm just that. ignorant to the fact of all that. I've just used Zeke my whole life. So like, that's just like, like the RPC remote service creation stuff, Jared, like I have a POC Anton, I think it's public that like, yeah. How do you detect like, going through like the base condition and going through like remote service creation. And like at each, like at the triage level, you start to dive into like the network along with hosts and then start to bring it all together in a Jupyter notebook. Yep. And then you can be more definitive on like, Hey, like this is the client process and this is what they performed. This was the middle piece of the network through Zeke. And this was the server uh, process and what they performed. And now we can start to look at this and be like, okay. Well, like this yeah. Anton actually has a really good, uh, Sorry, I'm I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to let you get to your points, but I think uh, this is Jermaine. The, Anton, in your in your lateral movement blog post, you talk about this same phenomenon with scheduled tasks, right? So it's like yeah. uh, when you laterally, like if 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 what you're concerned about regarding services is lateral movement, there's other reasons why an attacker might use uh, services, and it may be beneficial to detect services generally, but sometimes it's beneficially beneficial to reduce the scope to just like service creation for lateral movement because that gives you more context, right? But right. like, for instance, Johnny found that you cannot, like just using purely host-based means, it's basically 
I, I don't know if it's impossible, but it's very difficult, we'll say, to identify that the service was created use, like from a remote system. Right. Right. And that like, I, I don't know that this is true, but our percept, like our, our thought process is that the idea that it was created from a remote system is like a very important contextual piece of information um, yeah. for determining whether or not something is strange. Right. Because like remotely created services in order to laterally move, you, I think it's true that you must create the service remotely. Um, although maybe, maybe you create it remotely via means that like, we don't expect like uh, PowerShell remoting or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, that's an important piece and you can't get that unless you correlate it with some sort of network data source. Yeah. yeah and when people think of like scheduled tasks, they think of like SCH tasks on yeah. the command line, right? Or if you do it remotely, like that's yep. just, it's not there. So, and, and you don't even read about it now that I'm thinking about it more, like you don't read about it in, in like Fed Intel reports. So I can't recall yeah. a time that you read, you know, like, hey, a service was done remotely. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your earlier point, Jared, about like what we see and whether we're actually seeing the things that we need to be seeing. And yeah. maybe, well, maybe the, in this case, we're not. The question think, is, is what is a scheduled task? Right. Like, yeah. So like I have an abstraction, I have an abstraction mass or abstraction mass, abstraction map out there. I did a blog with Matt hand on schedule tasks and like an abstraction map. And I think like what, one thing I really liked about your lateral movement post was I felt like it touched on multiple different layers of the abstraction, dependent on where someone wants to like start to leverage detection. And so like, I actually really liked that about the post, like a lot Um, is like, you could go like when the abstraction, you start to the, like I look at the layers in the abstraction map as different, stra- like different levels of strategy from a detection perspective that someone yep. could leverage in their environment. Depends where you want to go. Do you have the technology to go lower? Yep. Um, because the lower you go, the potential of noise and volume of noise is, could be potentially there. Um, but also the value of context is also there as well. So you have yep. to kind of pick and choose your battles there. Yeah. Um, and that was one thing I realized with Scuzzle Task was like, hey, you can do these things remotely as well, but like just like services, like it's like I kind of like always thought of like services and Scuzzle Task, even though technology like technically they're, they're different, but they kind of in my head are yeah. very similar. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I realized that it's very difficult to see like, hey, someone did the schedule task remotely because like sure there's these RPC calls, but there's also different avenues that people can do. Like, I think there's actually, I, I can't remember what I put in the instruction map now, but I think there might be a WMI method as well, which, there is, yeah. yeah, which leverages something different. And so it's like now Schedule jobs for sure. There's a WMI method. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Right. And so like, and just like, for example, windows said that at dot is deprecated. It's not, you just have to change the value in the registry key. And so like, then we have to not only do like layers of detection strategies from a depth perspective, but also from like, I don't know what you call it, like a horizontal perspective, because right. like yeah. that that's just the way it might go. And I think for a lot of the times when defenders are looking at detection strategies, it's like, okay, well now for this one thing, say schedule tasks, we now have, I mean, we're 100% covered, but we have like six different detections. Is that feasible to do for everything? Um, which I think is often a common struggle, right? Yeah, t- to that point, it's like the the abstraction map isn't saying that you must create your detection at the bottom, which is your this is your point, Johnny. It's saying if you don't create your detection at the bottom, then you have a gap and you should be aware of that gap explicitly, right? And so like Anton, you talked about, okay, well, you could use a, I think it's a 4697 event to detect scheduled task creation. 
but like one of the fundamental questions that we should be asking as detection engineers is, and maybe this is where purple teams come in is, um, is it possible to create a scheduled task in a way that this event does not get generated? And if so, that's a, that's a pretty big blind spot. Right. Um, and we should be aware of it. Right. Yeah, and then I keep I keep repeating this, but it's it's so true to the dynamic that I keep at. It was like like very few people are actually like thinking about that, yeah. and and especially in a way that's like that's their job. There's yeah. there's this uh, kind of there's a so detection is a complex system, right? You you right. made reference to that earlier, and one of the the there's this idea called better wrong than vague. And the idea is, is that in any complex, are you familiar with that? No, but I love it already. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Just, I mean, yeah. So the, the general idea is, is that we, we cannot understand uh, complex systems because there's too many variables. There's no way for us to even understand what the variables are, let alone understand how the variables impact the system, right? And so one of the big di distinctions is there's complicated systems, which are things that uh, may be technically difficult to solve, but once you solve it, it's repeatable, right? And then there's complex, which is multivariate, and we can't, like the economy is a complex system, for instance. And like the best you could do with complex systems is you can manage the problem. You can't solve the problem, you can manage the problem, right? And you can manage it better or worse. Um, and the, the idea of better wrong than vague is that in any complex system, you must, you, it's a necessarily necessary prerequisite to, to have assumptions, right? Because you don't understand the, you don't understand the system fully. Um, and our job as, you know, critical thinkers is to identify those assumptions such that we make them explicitly as opposed to implicitly. And what you're, what you're saying is like, there's too many people that are making implicit assumptions. And the problem with implicit assumptions is nobody can challenge them. Right. So like I may make an, uh, an assumption, but to Johnny, that particular assumption isn't an assumption because he might have some knowledge that I don't have. And so he could come in and say, Hey, like I noticed that you made this assumption, but that that assumption is completely wrong, right? Yeah. And like by making the assumption explicitly, I can avoid catastrophe, or like you you move towards avoiding a catastrophe because you have other people that can criticize or analyze the assumption. One Sorry, thing I want, one you still thing have I want two to thanks by the way, Johnny. That I hope yeah, they're, trust me, they're locked in. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I want to normalize two things too. Is like just because, um, you either. I mean, just because you were wrong on a specific subject matter or your perspective was off a little bit or it changes given someone brings light to a new perspective. Like one thing I really, really would like to normalize is like you weren't dumb for being quote unquote wrong. You just happened to be incorrect yeah. about that one instance. And you, it, it might have been because you didn't have the technology, you didn't have the perspective or you didn't have the background knowledge. And that's 100 percent OK. Like, but the the sharing of knowledge needs to be normalized minus the. I'm better than you because I knew yeah. this because like there's something someone else knows to like in another subject that I'm ignorant about. Like, for example, like I, I kind of purposefully choose to stay away from Kerberos at all costs. You know, it's like I, if I can, if I can, if I can stay away from it, typically I, I, I attempt to try to. So like I leave that to the experts, you know what I mean? Like I just like let them do that. I'll, I'll learn from it. Great. But like um, I think that's one thing in the industry I would just love to see change is the transfer of knowledge and collaboration minus the ego like well it's it's better to be enlightened than it is to be ignorant right and like i yeah. use ignorant in a technical sense not in a like a pejorative sense it's uh like we are we are ignorant as i mentioned and when you find out that you made a bad assumption this is in life this is a, a technical matter when you find out you made a bad assumption you are being enlightened 
yeah. by definition, right? And it's better to be more enlightened than it is to be more ignorant. Like you don't want to yeah. bask in your ignorance. That's no, no. Yeah. I, I always tell my wife like one of my biggest fears in life is being like ignorant. I, I, I that that whole dynamic of just being like I don't want to know. Uh, maybe maybe I, I get like the specific things like everyone's like I'm, I'm python allergic i, I can't yeah. <laughs> I, I, like the whole jupiter thing i get it it's wonderful i can't like i've tried so many times to, yeah. to, to wrangle it I, I, it doesn't click so like not in that sense of ignorant but the whole like quest to become like less ignorant i think is yeah. super like important to me like personally and professionally but like you'll never get there right there's no such thing as like an yeah. all-knowing like that's being right that's yeah. that's impossible but yeah and what, what happens is people look at the problem from different abstraction layers, right? And so like, yeah. uh, and then we talk, uh, we often say things like on Twitter, it's common for somebody to say something and be like, oh, well, like everybody agrees this. And it's like, well, obviously not because we're disagreeing about it right now in this conversation, right? And so like, it's not, there's, there's a lot of times that people will like take something for granted and that's because they're analyzing it at this like superficial level of analysis. And like, that's why people feel like, oh, well, I have a stupid question. It's like, no, it's not stupid. Like you yeah. might actually be thinking about this problem at a completely different level than what other people are considering. Yeah, I right. think I think also like what separates people is like, okay, like I just got a new perspective like on something today and I was ignorant to it yesterday. Great, now I want to do my due diligence and figure out more about it, but also look back at any solutions that I put on put yeah. out previously on my previous knowledge and fix those like that is what separates the masses is that integrity issue that integrity of like saying like hey i know i touched this before but let me go let me just go back and check if this applies still and just like move forward i think that that actually psychologically is one of the reasons why people are resistant to uh to basically throwing away their assumptions because it's it's not always clear how how deeply that assumption is rooted in like everything that you do right? Like you might be married to the person, like this is psychological, but like you may be married to the person based on some assumption that somebody's just going to come destroy um, or like you built your life around it in some way. And it's like, if I let that go, then I like necessarily have to let all these other things go. Yeah. Like, there's lots of resistance to it. For example, like I gave some like, you know, research to some people a little while ago. And then like last night while playing around with some of the research, like I realized like my understanding was my breadth of understanding sure. wasn't at the level particularly what I thought. And I was actually up till 2 a.m. this morning making sure, like, going back through all my previous research to see if, like, the suggestions I, you know, I gave to them still applied and what needed to be changed so that whenever mm. 8 o'clock snapped open this morning at work, I could toss it over to them to make sure that they're good to go. Uh. And I, I don't say that to, like, build myself up, but I think, like, it's the enthusiasm and caring like that of yep. not wanting to be ignorant, but also making sure that impact is still applied because like the non-ignorance, man, that's huge. The non-ignorance is probably because I'm jacked up on C4 right now. Drink, by the <laughs> yeah. way, hey, please sponsor us, sponsor us. <laughs> uh, Skittles flavor. Um, the non-ignorance doesn't only impact me. So like if I hold that, if I hold that new knowledge to myself, what is that impacting? What is that doing? Great. My own ego. Cool. What is that? Like, that does, it does nothing for me. But I need to impact my workflow and my customers and all the partners that I have and we have. And so I need to, like, spread that knowledge out to them. That's where the true yep. impact comes from. And if I was wrong on something, I have to have the integrity and say, hey, yo, like, you, I was you, ignorant for this. I just need to fix it now. And this is the actual information. And here's the research why. Cool. 
you have to feed your ad- adaptation back into the genome. Yeah. Whoa. Back to the evolutionary. Sorry, trademark that, that, Jared. Yeah. Yeah. Trademark yeah. that. Oh, man. Okay. Like, I, I come from, uh, like, before I got in info, into InfoSec, I, I, I'm a history major, like you, Jared. Hey, I, nice. So dude. I come from, yeah. like, an academic background and yeah. the whole, like, concept of building on knowledge. Yep. It is like you know obviously like i think i carried that forward to to the infosec career but i think people assume that like that that knowledge building you know like i'm picturing like a snowball rolling down a hill and like getting bigger and bigger like it doesn't happen super fast like a lot of yeah. people think like when you do like a phd it's like a completely different like world changing like, like yeah yeah like a paradigm changing thing like paradigm changing research like yeah, it, it's like paradigm like it changes like your whole like it, that's not always the case right you, you, you just have to push that needle just a little bit further yeah. with your with your work and research so yeah that, that's definitely like a important you, you just gave me a new analogy potentially to try to investigate for the abstraction which is like <laughs> we all understand what world war Two was but like you could understand it so much more in depth as you go in like i mean maybe you could use any example right but like we generally know that you know like uh you know, the Nazis invaded Poland or something like that, but you could go so much deeper into why, you know, what, you know, where, when, all that stuff. Yeah. So. There's a reason why that World War II scholarship is still taking place, you know, yep. 70 years later. So yep. yeah, there's, there's definitely work to be done there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Johnny, hit your, hit your two points. I keep, I feel like I keep derailing you. All right. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, Anton, first question for you. So like, I we had this conversation with Andy um, last podcast, and I basically challenge the purpose of red teaming. Like, if we have purple team now, why does red teaming exist? But I want to flip that on its head real fast before we talk about that. In your instance of purple team, how often do you come across detection engineering teams or socks in general that are like, we got them, we collect them, they're super loud, we got them, and they're like, yeah, but you didn't catch this. Like, doesn't matter, we got them here. How often have you ran across that? Uh, I it, it's hard to say. Like some of our purple teams follow on from a red team or pen test. Some of them don't. Uh, but the ones that do, for for clients who have like a mature sock, they they manage to to get like certain pieces, but but not the full chain. I think that's where the the kind of like the rubber hits the road, and where clients have a little bit more trouble, and where purple teaming can help in taking like a whole bunch of atomic things that you might have found like you might have found a fish or you might have found like a weird powershell command line but how they link together and, and, and thinking about like okay well what if the threat actor or a red teamer did something a little bit differently yep. or, or what if you know one host wasn't sending the right logs or something like that i think that's where the the kind of like the value add in purple mm-hmm. is I know purple team, like, there's a whole bunch of, like, def- like everything in InfoSec, right? Like, red team, pen test, like, that people have different definitions of it. And I yeah. think the another differentiator is whether you're doing purple team as, like, a third-party consultant or, like, internal purple mm-hmm. team. Because my sense is that internal purple teams focus more on, like, validation and, like, atomic testing. And, and that's definitely part of purple team. But from a consultant point of view... Like if I'm with a client for a week, like I'm not just gonna run, you know, like Red Canary Atomic Red Team for them. Like they can kind of do that themselves. Uh, so, so the value is more of that like educational pieces that kind of don't fit in between red and blue, and that's 
that's where the profile part yeah. of it comes in. Yeah, hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, no, so I, 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 I asked because, like, I've seen this, and then, like, it made me kind of shift my thought process on that conversation we had with Andy then. And the reason why I say that is, like, I've often seen some organizations, if, like, a red team is going on and a defender gets an alert and they see, like, that specific activity happen and they can, like, walk it back, walk it forward a little bit, and then they hit you with that, oh, I thought they'd be less loud, smiley face. And it's like, to me, it's like, well, first off, to me, that's ego. I'm like, okay, let's take a step back here. Like, did the red teamer want to kick off that alert and start to see, like, your timeliness of, on, like, actually, like, going through the triage and investigation process? Because that is something that needs to be tested during red and purple teams as well. Not just does an alert fire. What is your response time? Because I really do believe, like, just like, for example, like if someone goes to a batting ba- uh, batting cage, oh the more repetitions they put in, the better they are. And that is, like, something that we have to, like, move forward and normalize in our industry. Is like the more times that you look into something, the more efficient you're going to do it. Let's just hope, like, the, the way you're learning it is the correct way to do it. But, like, efficiency is going to be, is going to be there. Um, but, like, I was thinking about, like, because I bring up the conversation with Andy, I was like, hey, like, with red teams, do they just pass off a report and then at that point they're like, cool, we're done? Or do they actually, like, what's the debrief come to? And then, like, I was talking to some other friends that do red team and, like, sometimes, like, apparently, like, some defenders don't even show up to the meetings for debriefs in some yeah. instances. Yeah. And the thing is, like, why, like, my, my question started to become, like, well, well, why aren't they? And I asked myself, like, was it because, like, some point during the red team they were, like, they caught something so they're really proud or they didn't, like, base essentially they didn't want to get shit on during the debrief. But, like, the reality is, like, you have to drop that ego because it's not about you. It's about your organization. And so, like, yeah. the question then becomes, like, what is the value of red teaming in general? What's the value of red teaming when defenders won't even, like, listen? And so, yeah. like, how do we fix both those issues? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so dependent on the client and this is from you know a consultant world and i i think what 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 i see like missing in conversations is that layer between like the client and the pm team of the of the company that's doing the testing yeah i think they're kind of like the unsung heroes of this like the the project managers and the salespeople because they're the ones that set up the engagement with the client and then set the expectations so for on our end for the purple team, we always try to have like a kickoff call or two or three, maybe just because, because communication, I think is like so critical in all this because you like a red team can mean so many different things to so many different clients. And, yeah. and it might be the case that the client doesn't even need it or want a red team. They're just calling it a red team, but they were, what they really want is like a purple yeah. or a pen test or something. So like, that's the, I think that's the crux of it. Like that communication and, and the, the second point to the communication is like validation of the communication. Like, do we understand each other? Like, here's what, here's the service that we're doing. Here's what we're expecting as a deliverable. Here's the people that we want involved. Um, and, and I feel like when that communication falls apart, that's when you run into the issues where the client's like not getting what they expect or the, the yeah. right people aren't showing up. And then there's like communication between like the client and the tester but then there's also like internal communication with within the client environment. And I find that even there that breaks down sometimes too. And that's why you don't have like the right people showing up to the right calls because the right P 
PM on their side wasn't involved and like something yeah. got missed in the, I think like that, uh, that's all part of it. So yeah, like the, I think we in InfoSec have all these definitions in our head and everyone knows what, what their own definition of purple is, but until you get with the client, figure out what it is exactly they're looking for, what it is they're expecting as a deliverable for this. Um, Cause yeah, I've done purples where it is just like atomic testing where I run TTPs, I, I mark it, you know, detect it, not detect it. And then we move on. Yeah. yeah. And then the, it, it, cause that's what the client wanted. That's what their, that's what their expectation was. And there's others that are more hands-on, more involved. Some clients want more focused on the defensive side of things where we don't really run TTPs that much. We we dig into their sim and do all that stuff. So, and yeah. that all falls under the, under the umbrella of purple. It's just the, the, I think the there's this piece important. there's this problem in like uh we have lots of these terms red teaming, purple teaming, threat hunting, detection engineering. The reason why we use those words is like they're purposely abstract, right? The whole idea is that they're abstract. And the the general reason why we use abstract abstract words is because we don't want to explain the details of them every single time. But like that approach is predicated on the idea that we all understand what red teaming means in a consistent fashion which we we obviously don't um and so there's this big problem but like when you're and like maybe it doesn't matter until like the rubber hits the road potentially right um which is on, on an engagement and it's so important to understand like what are you trying to achieve from this because like a uh the way that i view a traditional red team is like you have a single attack path that you go through and you have some end objective right that you're trying to achieve um and there's there's way more to it but that's like generally how i see them most frequently implemented and the question that i have is like what is the value proposition of that right it like uh because the value proposition is almost it seems like we need to prove that we're vulnerable so that we could get the funding to do the other stuff because like you have such a luke's gonna laugh at me this is like a camera reference but you have different apertures, right? And I don't know whether high aperture is like a broad perspective or vice versa. Luke? Uh, the wider the aperture, the narrower the perspective. Okay, so we the have less a... less is in focus. Okay, Wh whatever. We got we have a broad perspective. Um, <laughs> that didn't help So you have a small aperture. Okay, you have a very small aperture, which means you have a very broad perspective. So like, let's say, let's say you do detect the red team. <laughs> What does that tell you? What do you take away from that? Well, yeah. what that tells you is they happen to do something in a way that you happen to be able to detect. But like you can't yeah. take that as a like any indication of what will happen in the future, right? Because the next attacker might not use that thing and you haven't tested literally anything else. And then if you don't detect them, you like you you also can't evaluate where the problem happened because the problem could be we didn't collect the right telemetry. The problem could be our detection was not robust enough. The problem could be our tier one analyst received the alert, so our detection worked, but they marked it as a false positive. The The problem could be we detected it, we marked it as an incident, and then we ran a remediation step, and the remediation step didn't do what we thought it would do, right? There's there's so many different ways that that process could break down that I, I think that you almost have to, like the value proposition almost has to be at a more uh, atomic perspective, right? Because otherwise you're just looking at and like i'm happy to be in line like this is something i think i'm probably somewhat ignorant on right but and i i'm sure that there's tons of people that that have opinions about what i'm saying um and like i just ask that like you know actually consider the answer before you come yell at me about why a red team is valuable um 
you know, because if if you say something dumb, then you know it is what it is. But um, but like, yeah, I think I think like as a defender, the value to me is like I want to know whether or not how I approach this specific thing yep. actually worked, right? Yep. Um, yep. Not not, you know, we caught you. Okay, cool, great, you caught us. But like that doesn't yep. that literally has no. You can make no assumptions about the future based off of a successful in, detection in a in a red team. And for all the listeners, I'm not saying red teaming isn't useful, so don't don't cancel me. But what yeah. I'm saying is I do get confused between the use cases or the pro, the the problems that red teaming solve. Yep. And the overlap with what purple team solves as well. This this goes into the AV like when people say AV is dead, the problem isn't that a like AV hasn't changed. AV still does the yeah. thing that it always did. Maybe it does more than what it used to. Your perspective thing, on what AV th- should do is that's correct. Yep, yeah. your expectations of AV have changed, and so like you think that AV is worthless, but like AV is the thing that's allowing you to focus on the things that you focus on. Because if AV wasn't there, it'd be a shit show, man. Yep. 100%. Yeah, I, I remember back uh, like before I joined Flores, I was uh, just working at a small insurance company uh, locally, and I was in charge of like the sim. Um, an environment was like, I don't know, 1200 systems, so pretty manageable, right? And I had like Sysmon everywhere, uh, PCAP and all this good stuff. And I, that I wanted a red team done because I wanted to go beyond like an atomic test. I wanted someone who's like, does this professionally and has little tricks for like password spraying, maybe involve like a physical element to it. You, you wanted know, like your perspective some, to be expanded. Y- yeah, yeah, like longer term, like an engagement with like, you know, proper C2 that I can't like easily replicate myself or that, yeah. you know, commodity malware to sure. doesn't, do, doesn't do like that kind of stuff. So I wanted to see like, was I was I missing anything huge? Was I like making wrong assumptions, that kind of stuff. So I, I think like that's where the value of a red team is because um, like I, I, I had pretty minimal exposure to like professional pen testers and hackers sure, right before sure. I, I joined Lara's. And now that I see what, what our red team and pen test folks get up to, uh, it, it adds a ton of value, especially they, they find like little quirks and in, in authentication systems, little like um, little tweaks to certain things, just stuff that like a human has to do and a human with like the right experience for it, you know, like they, that they have like years under their belt, like they're grizzled, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing, right? Whereas, I think the I guess, purple is more for uh, like a yeah oh sorry in, in my opinion atomic doesn't necessarily mean automated I guess right yeah. Yeah. yeah so but yeah that's that's a good perspective I think is that um there's value in both approaches but if your expectation is tell me how robust my detection capability is like a like a generic red team might not be the best tool no. to solve that no problem. probably not yeah. yeah and that's again why the whole communication thing and understanding like as cheesy as it sounds like we understand your needs but like that it, it's just so important to understand like what it is that the client is trying to do and what stack they have right because if they have you know just like one poor av hanging out on their systems like a red team that won't, won't add much value yeah. for sure yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes we have customers that like they're trying to justify budget and so they're like yeah we kind of yeah. need you to show impact like at a broad like this is at the you know broad scale um and that's like a value proposition for sure but it's like then it's like okay well now we need to actually fix the things that we're showing impact on and like i think you have to reduce the scope in order to have meaningful change and then maybe you you could evaluate that to some degree 
and like you could you could cage the techniques that are used in the in the red team for instance to things that you like if you've been working on something over a long period of time you could cage the capabilities of the red team to some subset of techniques or something like that but like yeah i think any like no no holds barred i think is uh there's a very specific use case for that and it's probably not applicable in the mass, vast majority of cases definitely yeah. yeah i've seen like cyber insurance drive a lot of engagement to okay. lately um so yeah there's it, it keeps coming back to the, the communication piece like you yeah. just have to you have to get on the same wavelength as the client and yeah. then understand what they want sure i think also with the communication piece too of like those those clients that might have like an mdr vendor as well like communicating with them and being open like have open comms there as well because like it's hard enough to like if you have a red team um to make sure you're communicating well or like a purple team communicating well with whatever consultant company is doing that but also like it's almost like a game of telephone where it's like okay now you have to like go to the mdr and be like hey like what's this this and this and then like because the goal should be in my head is like a like let's like test the mdr make sure that they're doing a good job b like help the mdr like you've yeah. paid all this money for a red, red team like have that conversation to like try to expand their detection capabilities too because it's going to help you i mean like there, that's an interesting point because i think a lot yeah. of companies view mdrs as like a broad thing and like they view the value proposition of the mdr i'm not saying that the this is what the mdr says they're doing because i actually don't know like i don't i don't talk to the sales portion of mdrs at all so i don't know really what they're what they're promising yeah, or whatever okay fair enough um but like maybe there's like a implicit or possibly explicit thing of like we don't detect everything, but we will detect something in every attack. And so then like a red team is a valid test of that proposition, right? Because like, if you don't detect, if you don't notify me that there's a red team, then like you failed, you failed to meet the criteria that you, that you set upon yourself. But like, yeah, if you're doing it yourself, if, if like you don't have an MDR and you're doing it yourself, like that value proposition doesn't really exist, I guess is kind of the point. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like some of them. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was go gonna, ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say some of the most like engaging and fun purples that that I've done has been with the MSP or the MDR okay. that yeah. they're like collaboratively going through stuff, and that's uh, yeah. the client just always gets like a ton of value out of that. And, and same with the, the the third party too, because they get to validate their detections in a manner that's a little bit more open than, yeah. than a red team would. And you know, we could replay stuff, try variations, see if they're missing data sources, stuff like that. So yeah, it's a it's always better the, the the more the merrier, especially yeah. for the purple side. Yeah, I think it's intriguing too because like I'm very hesitant. I'm he very hesitant, like hesitant. And this was when I worked at Spectre, and even now working at Reconary, like in general, saying like this technique is covered. Oh, like yeah. I've always been very hesitant. You can't do that, you, really. You can't actually say that. In any yeah, way. and <laughs> yeah. so like when I hear yeah. people when I when I hear people say like we got that covered, I'm like, eh. you know, like, <laughs> well, it's a superficial. It's like a abstract way of saying, yeah, we have the most common ways that that gets used to cover. Yeah, like I'm right. I'm not good at sales. Yeah, you know, like so like given that might be why I, I might have that reaction, but like in general, I think like my technical like when I abstract things in my mind, I'm like, yeah, like that is definitely a way that we can detect that. Right. But there could be something or tomorrow or some ransomware group that's doing this, like doing a completely different variant of this attack that like we just haven't seen. And so it like, goes back to that conversation of like unknown unknowns. Like we just like, we don't know what we don't know. 
and like due to that, like I am never okay with saying like a hundred percent we got this. Okay, like, let me let me throw this at you. I know you still have one point and we only have about fifteen minutes, so we'll try to do this. No, fast. no, that my points are done. Okay, oh cool. Okay, so um what what you're talking about is what I call micro detectionomics, which is if I choose to detect a specific oh, technique. Words. I know, Luke, come on. Dude, dude I'm dude. from Missouri, man. Okay. So like you have to like ELI five, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's what I'm trying words. to do. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, micro detectionomics is the category that says if I choose to detect a given technique, say WMI lateral movement, how certain am I that my solution or solutions will actually detect when that's, when that technique is used. Right. And like, there's like, like you said, you can never be fully certain, but you could get, you know, generally some good ideas. Right. And that's yep. where abstraction mapping comes into play. But then there's macro detectionomics, which is this idea of like, what techniques should I focus my finite detection engineering resources towards solving? And I think there's this interesting conversation around um, while it is impossible, and this is the point of red teaming, right? Of my red team criticism, I suppose. But the uh, while it's impossible for us to predict what techniques will be used in a given attack path, I just call them attack paths because that's kind of what it is, right? Um, there are like not all techniques are used equally. So there's a disproportionate relationship between the frequency of different techniques, say like credential dumping using uh, like traditional Mimikatz type methods is probably like one of the higher or like certain lateral movement, right? And so there, there probably is some subsets of possible attack techniques that at least one of which is guaranteed to be present in any attack path. So like you, you might not be able to say, this this technique will be used in every like you, I I know for a fact you can't say that right so yep. um you can't say this technique will be used in a in ev this technique will be used in everything but maybe there's like ten techniques that if you have a you know above average solution for these ten techniques then you're likely to encounter that technique in any arbitrary attack path that occurs because yep. there's you know some subset of attack techniques that are used way like we think about like um. Apple Music listens, right? So, like, when you think about like Beyonce gets significantly more listens than you know some guy that's just starting out, or podcasts, right? Joe Rogan gets way more listens than Detection Challenging Paradigms, right? Or which is which is a sham. Michael man. Jordan scored more points in the NBA than the average NBA player, right? So that like there's always this disproportional, uh, exponential type relationship between between these things, right? And so there's there's that that relationship almost certainly exists within techniques, right? So like, you know, there's certain techniques that we know about, but they're almost never used. And there's other techniques that we, you know, you kind of assume are used in almost every case. Um, and so it's like, at what point will we have, can't like, what's the smallest possible set of techniques that if we can reliably detect those, and obviously not like with certainty, but like pretty reliably, if we could detect those, we will reliably detect, because you only have to, the other presupposition is that you only have to detect one technique within an attack path and if you could do that successfully and then respond to it properly you're good to go right um yeah. respond to it properly in the sense of like you have the technology to be able to walk that attack path backwards even if you didn't have the detections for sure. that yet. yeah yeah so like yeah you're once you know what you're looking at it's a completely different problem set than like detection and investigation are completely different problem sets and you have different tools at your you know available to you and so yeah that, that's the presupposition is um, you only have to detect one one technique to I, to then be able to investigate an attack path. Um, and so, like, what's the minimum set? Like, is it ten? Is it twenty? Is it fifty? I don't know. Is it two hundred? It could be. Or but, what? Or what techniques? Like, which tactic should you like 
focus yeah. more heavily. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that's a qu- that's a question as well. Is like, is it more tactic focus? Like, if you detect the the eight lateral movement techniques that Anton laid out, like, is that enough, or yeah. is there like you know potentially could somebody evade those and still be successful? Because I, I have a feeling, like for example, like it's not a hundred percent that someone's going to DC sync or dump LSAS, right? Correct. I do think, and given that's at a technique level, but like I do think it is a hundred percent someone's going to laterally move yeah well like in theory in theory you could technically fish the you like obviously this if if this is the case then like that that environment's screwed anyway but um technically you you could you could happen to fish the person that you needed access to to achieve whatever your objective was and so like then you technically don't have to laterally move i guess but um but yeah i don't know there it's it'd be an interesting thing that's like um you know, Gabe, I don't know if you guys know Gabe, the engineer, um, he just released this, like this thing that I, th- I forget what it's called, like some sort of flow type thing that talks the about, graphing the, yeah, the graphing thing yeah, of like how, yeah. how everything, um, uh, how like an attack path gets laid out in the graphs and like what entities are being, uh, you know, attacked or whatever using what techniques. And I think that with that type of information, you could, you could start to build up enough of a corpus of attack path graphs to start understanding, like, what are the, what's the most central technique? Because, yeah, yeah, basically that's the, and then it's like, okay, well, that's probably where we need to focus our resources. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I always get asked, or, like, we get asked, like, hey, what are the, like, top five, like, hardening yeah. things that we could do, or, like, what what's the, yeah. like... It's so hard to answer that, right? Yeah, like, right now it's an- anecdotal, but it'd be really nice yeah. if we could do something. Like, I, I think that there needs to be a more academic element to mm-hmm. uh, cybersecurity. And, like, Chris Sanders, I think, is probably the person that's pushing that the most. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, that's a that's a question that, in obviously, there's the, like, kind of, there's, it's bias. There's a selection bias because you only know about the attack paths that you've detected, right? So there's some subset of attacks that presumably you haven't detected. However, for what you have detected, you could ans- you could actually answer that, presumably. I just don't know that we have the data to be able to answer it properly. Yeah. Or like nobody's done the work to provide that answer. Right now it's just like, I know what happens to seem popular amongst the Twitter crowd, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, academically, like you have to get like a lot of buy-in and then you're like, oh crap, like you have a lot of people accessing data and then you have to go through like, yeah. I would like to see it too, it's just... I, I think like no matter like that that initiative that that, that we just talked about like fantastic. I think the from the client point of view, the more that they're able to collect, wrangle, and use like tactfully, like actually like because some clients like have data but they don't they don't they don't do anything with it. So the more like even though you might be missing detections, you know you might be you might have gaps. But the more you're able to like collect operationalize and get comfortable with like the more of a fighting chance you have to detect the the stuff that you might not have you know like a built-in detection for but just generally spot like weird stuff like that like back in my old job when i had like really good visibility with sysmon stuff i found all kinds of like crazy crazy things that i wasn't specifically looking for but they just kind of like bubbled up up. yeah yeah and and like a lot of them weren't like necessarily malicious but like you know app crashing or some map writing like a random like text file three million times a second or just some weird stuff like mm. that so i think like i think the concept of like ownership of your network is something that i yeah. see like lacking a little bit and i think like a lot of the the risk is kind of like you know like the ci uh, uh, the csp like what do you do with risk you can either accept the like transfer it uh, yep. or, or whatever 
I see a yeah. lot of like transferring of risk without mm. actually like understanding yeah. what it is they're transferring and, and how yeah, like, you like yeah asset asset inventory right like I like how many yeah, people do you see really do, yeah how many people yeah. like do you know really have access to your resources or still have a computer like like some of you still don't like no yeah. a good thing that you just touched on is um and like one of the things that we battle is there's a finite number of alerts that we can produce before we start to affect people's ability to deal with the next alert or maybe you even have a negative impact to where the more alerts you produce the less you're able to cover because of uh, alert fatigue but i think one of the things you touched on was uh this idea that your, our job isn't necessarily to detect malicious stuff right that's like the low resolution way to look at it it's to explain the previously unexplained behavior if that makes sense so like um, because like one of the, I, I don't know, again, this is an academic question of like what leads to alert fatigue. And like, I, mm -hmm. I suspect that one of the things that leads to alert fatigue is the less frequently you find things, the more quickly you're going to like find things that you're, you know, are malicious, the more frequently or the more quickly you're going to become alert fatigue. Do if you, that makes sense. Do you think like, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Yeah, no worries. I'm just curious. Like, do you think that's like a alert to analyst ratio well it, I, so I, like that's yeah. one like that's one thing and then also maybe like that ratio might change dependent on the skill level of that I, yeah i have a whole thought process on this but let me let me okay, okay, yeah so but the, i think there's like a if you could change the paradigm of what people think they're doing so like if you change it from you're looking for malicious because that's what all the like sizzo asks like did you find anything you know um mm -hmm. but what if you changed it to it's like your job is to discover things that are currently unexplained, discover behavior that's currently unexplained, and explain it, regardless of whether it's malicious or not. And that's considered success. I think that yeah. completely, I, I think that that could have a positive impact. Uh, to your point, Johnny, I think that there's like one of the things that we ask about is like you have a finite capacity for alert generation, right? And I, I think the variables. And I'm happy to have this conversation. Uh, and if anybody has variables that they think of that I don't list, I, I'm happy to hear about it. But I think the variables are the number of analysts you have, the amount of hours that they work on alerts, right? So like not necessarily like you work 40 hours a week, so you get 40 hours per an analyst because you can't work people full time on alert processing. So it's like maybe 75%, 30 hours a week, or I don't know what, I don't know how you derive that that number, but whatever that number is. And then it's like there's some efficiency factors like for instance i might be able to like process alerts faster than you can so maybe i could do 10 alerts per hour and you could do eight alerts per hour right well you you average that out and then you come up with this is our capacity for alerts and ideally in an ideal world you are producing alerts at that capacity right because then you're not wasting resources to some degree ideally you have like you know improvements and things worked into that 10 hours or whatever that you're not that people aren't processing alerts You've kind of yeah. like figured that out. Um, but the question is, is like, how do we increase our alert capacity? Well, you could hire more people, you could work people longer, or you can make them more efficient. And like you make them more efficient through like training is one way, I guess, um, or automation or documentation potentially. And I think it's like generally easier for companies. Like most companies are not at like their analysts aren't working at their peak efficiency. Right. So there's yeah. like a, a lot of people like the easy button is hire more people um, yeah. conceptually. But I think like you would be it, it's a lot easier to just get people to be more efficient, invest in your people, make them more efficient. Yeah. 
I think like from, from what I've seen, the whole alert fatigue, and this might be like a controversial opinion, I, I, I worry a little bit that the whole alert fatigue thing has become like a boogeyman thing where people and clients are like afraid to onboard data and to get more data because they're like, oh, what about alert fatigue? Where, where they have like zero alerts. You know what I mean? Like they haven't yep. even... Well, like you, haven't yeah. even you haven't even tasted it yet. And I think like from an analyst point of view, like if you had like a really good, like you mentioned documentation, like if you knew, if you had a good inventory, you had a good sense of like what server does what, like it should be fairly quick to dismiss an alert that's benign, right? And yeah. I think like expel.io, like that, that they do a really good job of like articulating how they prioritize and how they like manage their data and the metrics they take. And I think like, from what I've seen anyways, the analysts don't really get that level of support. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I think like other fatigue, definitely valid, but like you have to like experience it first before it actually like stops you from doing things. And I think that dynamic is a little bit reversed. From, yeah. And from I think, what I've seen. I think, uh, alerts. So false positives are a necessary precondition to reducing false negatives, right? Because you have no way to measure false negatives. And the way that you do that is by being, by allowing false positives because like it, let's say you have zero alerts well like if you have zero alerts then uh you're assuming that what like the alerts that are produced are the only types of malicious activity that could occur right um which it is a seriously flawed presupposition i think um mm. and so then it's like okay well we have to open the scope like when you talk about classification you talk about sensitivity and specificity and sensitivity is like what is the likelihood that if something is bad, I will I will consider it to be bad? And the way that you increase specificity, which uh, is you it allow more false positives, right? You you reduce the threshold by which you produce an alert, and that that's yeah. like basically that's the only way to that's the only way that we could do it because we don't have a way to measure the other side. Ideally, you do it in a smart way, obviously, right? Like you don't right. like a way to not have any false negatives is just to alert on every event that you ever collect. I mean, you, you still actually would have false negatives because there's potentially bad stuff that doesn't manifest itself in the data that you collect, but like you would reduce your false negatives by a lot. It's just would be unmanageable. So we need to do it. We need to do that in a smart way, but reducing all false positives to zero is a fail, a failing strategy for sure. I think the, I think the one way to drive that point home is like, have a set of analysts sit down, understand what their detections are, like purposely fire those detections, and then do like three or four variants that don't. Yeah. And then uh, well, like, that's the purple. That's like a purple team strategy. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I think like part of it, that's yeah. where I see like the huge impact is because like conceptually, like that all makes sense, right, Jared? Like you're like, yeah, like absolutely. But it's like in the actual practical use case of like their day to day job, I think it's easier to be like, yeah, but like we got four out of eight covered. We like I'm okay to accept the rest. Like are you though so like well, let's yeah. let's sit down and actually make you sit through these gaps and then like how hot do you like i would argue the hotter you feel in that seat the more like the less you are willing to actually accept that risk yep yeah i don't i i could go on this topic for another half hour so i don't know if you guys have time but i i'm happy I do, to, yeah for sure yeah know, I, I i guess the only thing I, I just worry about the fact that like people don't because they're so scared of the the other fatigue and all that that they don't try. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like like they yeah. fail before they start. Yeah, but then if but the then thing. if you don't try, you might as well not be doing. It. Like you're wasting money, right? Like so. Yeah. My I guess my point is is that it's okay to not try, maybe, but maybe, yeah. you might as well not have a detection and response team if you're not going to allow false positives because you 
like if you don't allow false positives, then you you can't do the job before, that you're hiring you go, people to do. Well, before you go on this like false positive train that I know you really do, we have do we actually have more time, Luke? Are you good? It's like I probably have like another fifteen or twenty. Okay. No, okay. Fine. So, um, before you go on that, like, let me ask this, and I want to ask this to everybody in the room, even even Luke over there. Should an analyst, whenever an alert fires and they go to investigate that alert, should they be trying to prove that it is malicious or should they go in there proving that it's non-malicious? Because I feel like whichever way they do so, and like, I really don't think there's a case where somebody goes in there blindly and is like, okay, I'm just going to look at this, look at this and just like, whatever. Like, I think as time goes on and as you start to become more efficient in your practice, you choose one of those two things. Yeah. And the way you look and investigate that data are going to happen differently. So what are your guys' thoughts and opinions? Like, How should an analyst look at the data if an alert fires? Should they look at it like, I'm trying to prove this is malicious or I'm trying to prove this is non-malicious? Yeah, I think there's, um, for me, I think it's not quite that black and white, potentially. So like, I look at it from like the perspective of the funnel and the goal at each phase until remediation basically is to say, should I allocate more resources towards this event? Right. And so like the job, like the job of detection, in my opinion, isn't to, I isn't like, it shouldn't be to detect malicious behavior. It should be to, to detect events that deserve more resources. Right. Because okay, like, well, I'm not talking about detection. Like I'm talking about like, well, like in a triage, you do the same thing, I guess. It's yeah, like, well, like, let, let's say you are at whatever point your organization has built out for an analyst to say, malicious or non, you've already gone through this contextual piece of applying that data back. Because the reality is each organization is going to do differently. Some people, like, like merge triage and investigation together. Some people merge the detection triage together. Not everyone has it split out like the funnel. So let's say like yeah, you're I, at whatever point you see fit within the funnel to actually perform the investigation and you have your analyst. They have all the data that they want. I, I think eventually you have to get to the point of saying, is this something that I want to be occurring in my network? So I think that eventually, because you can never be certain whether it's malicious or benign. Like, I, I don't think you could be very, very close to certainty, but I don't think you could be certain. Yeah, I don't think there's 100%. And so there's a threshold at which you, like, I think we, we tend to think of everything as a binary comparison of, like, a single parameter, right? So we say, oh, well, if, if it meets this criteria, then we alert on it. And it's like, you know, the service was created by a process other than services.exe. But, like, that's a low-resolution way to look at it because really what we're doing is we're establishing a threshold at which if something's above that threshold, you alert on it, right? Yeah. But if you only look at one one uh, parameter or one variable, then you only have scores of zero and one hundred, and so your threshold is a hundred. But like I think in real life, your threshold is like seventy or something. Like you know, you could adjust that threshold depending yep. on your risk acceptance or risk tolerance. But I think you basically are saying you're. I think you're ultimately determining whether or not it's malicious or not, or it's at least past uh, the threshold of being considered to be undesirable. Yeah, yeah. and maybe there's like a there's an alternative thing of like if I kill this thing, will it impact business? Because like, yeah. yeah, you might as well just kill everything that doesn't impact business to, to be honest. Yeah. I think that's what actually puts people on the back foot when they're in larger, larger organizations and they're triaging these kinds of things. I think they are almost forced to look at it from a innocent until proven guilty perspective because it takes too much time to look at it 
at a guilty until proven innocent perspective. It takes too much time to do that to every single alert. So I think when you're in a large organization that has like a bunch of these and who like falsely puts metrics around alert closure, you have to look at it as benign. If nothing stands out, you close it. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah. Okay. That is an interesting point. Go, yeah. go ahead, Anton. I, I got. I would. I would love us. No, I was, I was just going to say like I would love a study about the bureaucracy of an organization, how that affects like the cyber response and the cyber the thresholds. Yeah, basically. The yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Because I've had so much friction with like cab and like ITIL and like getting changes through and like tickets and by the time you get like one little, you, you want to do like one little change and it takes like months. So I think like that 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 dynamic is interesting. But in terms of like alert, malicious, benign, like every time I get an alert, like it, it's never enough, right? Like if you just get like yeah, one correct. piece of like, yeah. I, I always want more. Like, I, and I'm always interested in like, I want to build like a narrative, you know, like where did this come from? What happened? Yeah. Like, where did it go? And then at that point, I think the benign and malicious would hopefully be at least closer to self-evident than it was yeah. Yeah. with that like one piece of data. But yeah, it's a, Definitely a struggle. If you think about like the English common law system and like how we apply law, at least in America, and I'm I'm sure in Canada it's the same, right? But um, it's innocent until proven guilty. And the reason, like, this is a binary classification problem because the options are so that okay, there's the reality: the person is innocent or they're guilty, right? But we don't know the reality because, like, you can't just assume that the person's telling you the truth because, like, you know, surprise, surprise, guilty people will say they're innocent, and so. Um, and sometimes actually innocent people will say they're guilty. That's like way less frequent, but that actually there are documented cases of that. Right. And so what we're doing is we're viewing the evidence to make a declaration of what we think is the case. And sometimes those things don't match up. The truth and our classification don't match up. And that, that would be false positives, which is where we put somebody innocent away or a false negative, which is where we let somebody guilty go. Right. And both of those are errors, which represent a, an issue or like, a uh, uh, that our that our perspective of the problem was too low resolution to make the proper decision, right? Um, now, the the problem of comparing, in my opinion, like a computer scenario, like a detection scenario, to uh, the legal system, is like we our legal system is built on this idea that the individual is sovereign, right? And almost like that there's like a, you know whether you believe in religion or not, it's like there's like the uh, d- like a spark of divinity is within each person. So each person is, has some like resemblance to God, whatever that may mean. Um, and so the, the idea that you would accidentally throw somebody's life away, um, is a huge risk. And the general, like not saying that we don't mess this up, but the general idea of the, the legal system is that that's too big of a price to pay to be wrong. Yeah. Right. And so we yeah. err on the side of like, let's not mess that up. Um, yeah. I don't think that that analogy applies to like a process running on a computer system because like what's the worst case scenario well you lose a billion dollars well like a life is maybe you could make an actuarial argument that maybe a life is worth less than a billion dollars but you know conceptually uh a billion dollar like i i tend to think that like there's almost nothing you could do um on a computer system that would be equivalent to accidentally locking locking an innocent person up i guess yeah i i asked because like when we talk about like alert and analyst fatigue um like i think whichever way an analyst sits down they look at they have all the data they want they've gone and dug in now they're willing to now they're at the point where they want to make the decision i think there's biases biases apply to both sides yeah that's true yeah so like um 
one that I can see if you're going in there trying to prove that it's not malicious. Like if you're just like, okay, like I want to prove that this fits in my organization, all these different things. A while back, we like at the beginning, we talked about ignorance, right? Yep. And like the willingness to accept ignorance. And I can definitely see in some instances where there might be times where people are like, uh, I'm not sure I see like this being used on two workstations. The prevalence of this is like not super high. I'm kind of ignorant for what it's being used for, but because of this, I'm willing to close it out. And that, that could be, that could hold a lot of harm for your organization. Mm -hmm. On the other side, if you're in there trying to prove that it's malicious, that takes a lot of time. And the more time you spend on an alert, the lower the threshold of alert per analyst happens. So that alert fatigue can happen quicker. Let's see what it doesn't make sense. What yeah, I'm running, like, uh, but you backwards. okay? So you you may have kind of changed my perspective a little bit, um, or at least let me articulate it better. But the okay, so if if your goal is to prove that something's benign in order to close it out, then that means that you're going to inevitably kill things that were benign, but you just couldn't prove that they were benign, right? So that, that means you're going to be false, uh, false positive prone, right? Um, if your goal is to only kill things uh, once you prove that they're bad, then that means inevitably there's going to be bad things that uh, that don't get killed, yep. you know, don't get remediated, we'll say, um, which means you're false negative prone. Yep. Now, like one of the, I think that there's already a substantial bias towards false positives in the way that like our feedback mechanism is set up. And so I would argue that you should, uh, be on like you should err on the side that makes up for your blind spot if that makes sense which means that you should probably err on the side of we need to prove that this thing is benign wait in order to like we need to prove that it's benign in order to remove it from the pipeline if that makes sense yep absolutely um because i also think that there's uh you know that exponential thing i talked about about how like uh, they call it the pareto principle is generally the idea but it's like um some techniques are used exponentially more than other techniques. I think that's true of the impact of false negatives versus false positives. So the impact of a false negative is like in Maersk, the shipping company's example, it's like a billion dollars a day. I'm making that number up, but it's something substantial like that. A billion dollars a day because of a ransomware attack or Saudi Aramco is another example, right? And so there's there's no cap to the amount of impact that a single false negative can can have, right? But the the cost of a false positive is the equivalent of the amount of time that an analyst spends looking into it. And so there's a finite there there is a cap. There's like it there's there's a finite amount of cost to false positives. Now the the I guess criticism of that approach is that uh the occurrence of false negatives so like the idea is it's false negatives, the impact is exponential and the impact of false positives is linear. But uh the criticism is that the occurrence of false negatives is linear and the occurrence of false positives is exponential. So it's like they, they flip when you talk about how frequently they occur. Um, but I, I still think, I, I think that like you have to be, we have to be extremely sensitive to the threat of false negatives in my opinion. Yeah. And I think like the, if the response to a false positive is to like decrease the amount of data that you're looking at or to like, suppress something like maybe that's not the right decision because maybe with more data you'll be able to get rid of that false positive so i I, like 
I just worry about that like knee-jerk reaction of false positive yeah. to be like, hey, we have a false positive, so they had this data's like all noisy, we gotta throw it away. Where yeah. it could be the case that if you add an additional data source, this false positive, you have more information about it, so you can just close it quicker or, or build like a correlation so it won't fire anymore. So yeah, I think like I think these are things that are really important to think about, but I don't see a lot of people <laughs> thinking about them, unfortunately. Yeah. 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 I, so think, like, I, wish I think part of the issue to that, and like this goes back to a conversation Jared and I had the other day. It's like there's a lot of these like because this conversation right here is like relatively conceptual, right? Um, yeah, it's hard to hard to put it into practicality yeah. into a practice where like it's being redundant. It's being like especially with how secretive everybody kind of is and how they exactly. Yeah. And like I think like that's like the struggle that I see because it's like you know there's a lot of great conceptual ideas for detection engineering and like the whole pipeline in general. But the question is like, are people practically implementing the, those? If so, are they even willing to come out and say how they're performing these practices? Because like that could help another organization's pipeline in general, right? Yep. I think this is, uh, it reminds me of like the sins of commission versus sins of omission type thing to where, um, like, it, you know, when I, let's say my, when I was a kid, if I did something bad and I didn't tell my mom that I, that I had done it, uh, and then she found out later, she'd be like, why'd you lie to me? I'm like, oh, I didn't lie to you. She's like, well, you didn't tell me. That's the same thing as lying, right? That, that's basically like um, false negatives are like the sin of omission. It's it's this invisible thing that we don't even realize, like we, we don't even realize is happening. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's less bad, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. Cool. Well, I think yeah, we, this is our longest podcast episode ever. So, Anton, <laughs> appreciate you hanging out <laughs> with right. us, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the prize. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Guys. Yeah, we man. Thanks for it, taking man. the time and, and um, this week to hang out with us. Yeah, yeah likewise, sure. likewise. Like I said, my it's pleasure. also great to meet you in person. I see all the cool work you do, and I'm yeah. like, oh, thank you. I've never actually got to like meet you yet. So I, I know. Hopefully, after COVID, I could like get out to like a con or something and see you yeah. guys in person. Yeah, for sure. Dude, yeah, that'd be hopefully awesome. blackout. Everybody, I live in Vegas, so I'd be happy to. <laughs> nice. Dude, Jared, are we thinking some uh, some more live in Vegas episodes for blackout? Yeah, we could do that. We get, we got to figure out how to like do it inside the casino. I feel like that might not be, That'd awesome. be pretty sick, i don't yeah. i don't know if any of us have pull like that so i can just put on my old like specter op shirt and just slide under the radar and be like yo i'm an employee let me just like let in one of the there rooms yeah cool awesome. all right guys well yeah appreciate you and uh this was a great Likewise. great convo i really enjoyed it so thank you yeah thank you i did talk too. to you soon thanks Cheers, guys thank you Cheers. thanks for tuning in to this episode of detection challenging paradigms if you want to keep up with us you can do so on twitter at dcp the podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.